Welcome to the Siski Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. So I heard a story about a pastor. And uh, this pastor, man, he was just feeling like he didn't want to preach that day. He was like, yeah, I'm, I'm calling in sick. I'm skipping work. And so he called the associate pastor and said, hey, man, I'm sick. I'm not going to make it to work today. Uh, thanks for covering. And so what was really going on is he wanted to go golfing. And so he skipped town, went to a nearby city where no one really knew him, and he went golfing. And so he walks up to the first tee box, and he just stripes the ball. I mean, he smokes his drive and it just goes and a gust of wind comes up behind his golf ball and it goes all the way, hits the edge of the green, rolls across the green and drops into the hole. And he says, I can't believe this. I just hit a 453 yard hole in one. And then in heaven, there was an angel that looked to the Lord and said, why would you do that? And the Lord smiled and looked at the angel and said, who's he going to tell? (laughs) so today we are going to talk about preachers and you say oh well that's not very helpful to us we're not preachers that's not very practical ah but you are you see we are all preachers we are all ordained we are all called to be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ if you are a believer then really you are uh, a pastor And, you know, Matthew 28, Jesus gave the disciples the Great Commission. He said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you to do. In Acts 1.8, he told the disciples to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. The idea is to start small with your group and work your way out, but share uh, the gospel with, with everybody. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul tells us that we are sufficient, or some translations say able, ministers of the new covenant. That we are sufficient, that we are able ministers of the new covenant. And then in John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. We are all to be ministers of the gospel of Jesus. We are all to be preachers of uh, the good news of Christ. And some of you say, oh man, that is terrifying. Even as I'm talking about the idea that we're all to be those who proclaim the good news, boy, we can start to panic. We say, oh man, I'm not sure what to say. I'm not sure how to present it. And I would say to you, man, you're in luck. Because this morning, we're going to look at the first few verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And Paul really lays out for us what the the preacher should say, what his motivation should be. Uh, you know, the approach that we're to take in verses 1 and 2, the attitude that we're to have in verses 3 and 4, and in verse 5, he reminds us of the aim. So we're going to look this morning at the, the, the preacher's approach, the preacher's attitude, and what the preacher's aim is. And again, we're all to be preachers of the good news of Christ. And so verse 1 of chapter 2 says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech, or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ 
and him crucified. So when we are endeavoring to share our faith with other people, man, there can be pressure, there can be temptations, we can feel like we need to be relevant, we can feel like we need to sound smarter than we are, we can feel like we need to have all of the answers, that we need to be prepared to tackle any objection that may come our way. We can feel like we, we must be experts in the Bible to share our faith. Uh, we can be tempted to use our salesmanship and to be persuasive, to win arguments. But the truth of the matter is, Paul says, just Jesus. You don't need any angle. You just need Jesus and Jesus crucified. Now, Paul can attest to this from his own experience. See, this letter that Paul is writing, he's writing to the church at Corinth. Church planted, or not church, Paul planted the church at Corinth during his second missionary journey. Remember, after Jesus got a hold of Paul's life, man, it was radically changed. He was about Jesus and Jesus only, man, he had to tell everybody what the Lord had done for him. And he spent the rest of his life traveling around the world proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Three missionary journeys, 10-year period, 14,000 miles by foot and by boat. On his second missionary journey, though, that's when he came to Corinth. And that's where he planted this church of Corinth. But before Corinth was Athens. Before Corinth was Athens. And Athens... Athens was uh, the center for intellect. It was the hub for academia and philosophy. And while Paul was there in Athens, man, he did what he always does. He shared Jesus. He went to the synagogues. That's what Paul always did the first time he showed up someplace. He said, where's the Jews? Man, where are my fellow countrymen? I'm gonna go and show them Jesus in the Old Testament. And so there in Athens, Paul shows up to the synagogue, he preaches Jesus. Man, when they're sick and tired of hearing from him, he goes to the market, the open air markets, and he begins to share Jesus there in the marketplace. Basically, Paul would talk about Jesus with anybody who was willing to listen. I like that about Paul. But while he was there in the open marketplace sharing, there were the Epicurean uh, philosophers and the Stoic philosophers. They heard this message of Paul about Jesus and how he was uh, resurrected from the dead. And these great thinkers said, what does this babbler say? Who is this fool? What is he talking about? Uh, who is the setter forth of strange gods? You see, they heard about this Jesus and they said, man, that is just this weird, strange God. But what is Paul talking about, but they needed to know. There in Acts chapter 17, it kind of records the story of Paul in Athens. But there in Acts 17, 21, this was kind of their uh, response to Paul, hearing of Jesus. They said, for all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. That's all they did in Athens. That was their thing. To sit around and to debate and philosophize and, and to talk. And so in the marketplace, these great thinkers heard Paul and they said, we've got to hear more. And they invited him up to uh, Mars Hill, the Aeropagus, the, this, this huge thing up on top of a city hill where they would go really to debate and to philosophize and to pontificate. And, and, and so Paul was there with all these great thinkers and he was going to share Jesus with them. Now, here's the thing that you have to understand about the Athenians. Is 
that not only were they great thinkers and, uh, you know, into academia and their intellect and philosophy, but they were very pagan and they were very superstitious and they worshiped many, many, many gods. And so they had these famed thousand altars, but they were superstitious. They were afraid that they might accidentally leave a god out. And so they had this altar to the unknown God, just in case they accidentally forgot when they say, oh, we didn't forget about you. Look, we have this altar to the unknown God. You're covered there. We didn't know your name, but we didn't leave you out. And so while Paul is there with these great thinkers, you know, going to share Jesus with them, he finds this altar to the unknown God and he uses it kind of as this segue, as this bridge to build uh, with them. And while Paul is preaching the gospel in Athens, man, he makes mention of their thousand altars. He uses this altar to the unknown God. He quotes uh, their poets uh, and uh, their philosophy. He discusses it with them. Um, He was relevant. Paul was entertaining. He was intellectual. But he had mixed results. There in Athens, most of the the people there that day, they mocked Paul. They mocked him. Some of them said, hey, come back later. I mean, we're kind of interested. We'll we'll, we'll chew on it and we'll hear you out. And then some were saved, but there was no church planted in Athens. And so this is kind of one of those things that Bible teachers argue about. Like, is this an example in Acts of how not to preach? Was this a giant failure in Paul's life because there was no church planted there? Was he not leaning on the Holy Spirit? Was he not relying on the true gospel? Did he not share the the, the gospel in totality? Did he talk about the crucifixion? Or did he just talk about the resurrection? There's all these debates about whether this was a failure in Paul's life or not. And that's debatable. We could learn some things. Uh, on what to do and what not to do from his message uh, on Mars Hill to the Athenians. But one thing is for sure, that Paul, he walked away from that exchange on Mars Hill doing things differently when it came to preaching the gospel. Because he went from being relevant and entertaining and intelligent to saying, hey, listen, you guys, I'm telling you what, our approach to sharing the gospel is just Jesus. That's it. No big fancy words, no, you know, uh, interesting analogies, no uh, lofty words, no philosophy. We are just going to share Jesus and Jesus alone. Never rely on the cleverness of the exposition, but on the Holy Spirit, is what Ian Bounds said. Wise words that Paul would definitely agree with. And this whole thing where Paul says, man, I've come to you, Corinthians, preaching Jesus and Jesus only. That really is to be our approach. That that we don't need to be witty. We don't need to have all of the answers. We don't have to be persuasive. And I don't know about you, but for me, that frees me up. Boy, that is encouraging. Because it's not on me to get everything just right. All I have to bring is the message of Jesus. And we all know the message of Jesus. It's simple for a reason. Man, Jesus became a man. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross in our place. He rose from the grave three days later. And if you believe on him, believe it in your heart, confess it with your mouth, you're saved. That is pretty darn simple. And I appreciate that. And that is what we have been charged with. Just share Jesus. 
simply, and leave the rest to the Lord. But I want to take just a quick minute, quick rabbit trail. I want to talk about the exclusivity of the message of Christ. Because we are called to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And the good news of Jesus is that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life. That no man comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said. There is an exclusivity to Christianity. There is no other means for man to enter heaven but by the blood of Jesus. Not by being a good person, not by doing good things. There's no amount of money or sacrifice or penance that we can pay to earn God's favor. Nobody, regardless of reputation, achievement, special knowledge, or personal holiness, can come to God the Father except through Jesus. And so if we're expected to share this as the only way, why is Jesus the only way? Right? Why is Jesus the only way? Those are Jesus' words, by the way. He said of himself, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but my me. And he didn't mince his words. He didn't say, I am a way, as in many ways. I am a truth, as in there are many truths. But I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The only way. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember the night before Jesus was crucified, he cried out to his Father in heaven and said, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way to do what? To accomplish the salvation of man. Then let this cup pass from me. What cup? The cup of God's wrath. The wrath that we deserve. There is no other way. Here's the thing. As we share that truth with the world, Man, in our carnal nature, in our flesh, in our humanity, we do not like that message of exclusivity. We, we say, oh, that is offensive. That's arrogant to claim that, that your religion is the only right religion. How can you say that? And there's this idea that we love to grab hold of as humans. It kind of makes us feel better that, that really all religions are basically the same. Uh, they're just coming from a different perspective. Right, that they're all different paths up the same mountain. All religions kind of lead to the, the same precipice, to the same summit. That we're all just approaching God from our own perspective. And, and in fact, there was a, a poet in the 1800s named John Godfrey Sachs. He wrote this poem called The Blind Man and the Elephant to illustrate this idea that we're all just approaching the same God from a different perspective and that we are all kind of idiots is his point. It goes like this, it says, It was six men of Indistan, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant, and happening to fall, against his broad and sturdy side, at once began to bawl, God bless me, but the elephant is nothing but a wall. The second feeling of the tusk cried, Oh, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp, to me, is mighty clear. The wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal, and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, the elephant is like a snake. The fourth reached out his eager hand and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain to me. Uh, Tis clear enough the elephant is like a tree. The fifth who chanced to touch the ear said, 
Even the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact who can. This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I see, said he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Indistan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. So oft in theological wars, the disputants, I ween, tread on in utter ignorance of what each other mean and prat about the elephant not one of them has seen. So his point is basically, boy, you guys in your religious, you know, uh, clubs are all just blind men groping at the dark. None of you really know what you're looking for, and all of you are wrong and arrogant. And uh, I say, you know, that is the most arrogant statement that you can make. In calling religion out as arrogant, he calls himself out, the poet, as the most arrogant because he says, well, you guys are all blind and you don't understand who the elephant really is, but I do, and I can tell you all that you're all just blind and arguing about. You say, what? Come on. But the world, the world says, you know, I don't like this idea of exclusivity. And the thing that I want you to understand about Christianity is that it is exclusive. Jesus is the only way to heaven. But it's not exclusionary. It's incredibly inclusive in that all are invited. It's exclusive in that Jesus is the only way. But it is the most inclusive in that anybody can come. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you haven't done. Jesus is there with arms open saying, come to me and let me make you whole. Let me heal you of your sins. Let me forgive you of your debts. But the world, we say, oh, you know, all religions are basically the same, but they're not. There are, are, are many religions in the world, but the top five are Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Judaism. And all of those religions, they are not different paths up the same mountain. They are not a different take on who God is. They are fundamentally at their core at odds with one another. They are not complementary. They are contradictory. And that's what you have to understand. Because you can talk to people and they can seem very convincing. Oh, well, you know, all paths really lead to God. And in a sense, they are right. All religions lead to God. All will stand before Jesus Christ someday. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess But not all paths lead to forgiveness. Not all paths lead to heaven. Only Jesus. And so you take these religions that the world says, oh, they're all basically the same, but fundamentally they're not. When you look at who these different religions say, well, who is God? What is his character? What is sin? How do we deal with sin? Can we be forgiven? Do we have a, a, a hope for the future? Is there a heaven? What does heaven look like? How do we get there? All completely different and not just slightly different, but again, contradictory. And so when we look at those five major, well, why Jesus? What sets Jesus apart? One word, sin. Sin. You see, sin is the real elephant in the room. Sin is the real problem that humanity has. See, that's the one thing that that almost all religions have in common is that we recognize that we have blown it, that there is sin, that we have this sin debt that is upon our lives. But how do we deal with that sin? How do we find forgiveness? How, how How do we restore our relationship with God because sin is that thing that separates us from God. Sin is that thing that brings death. Sin is that thing that brings sorrow and suffering. 
So what do we do with sin? And see, in our society, we don't even like to acknowledge that we're sinners, right? Every activity that we engage in that is sinful, we have an excuse for. Well, that's a disease, or that's a condition, or that's a predisposition, or it's because of the way I was raised. It's my mom's fault. It's my dad's fault. It's my wife's fault. It's my work's fault. But sin is sin. And that is the question, what are we going to do with our guilt? And the answer for all religions except for one is work it off. Work it off. But, but who gets to determine the price that should be paid? Who gets to determine what the penance should be? Who gets to say when enough is enough? How much good outweighs the bad that I've done? And can we ever know? Will the sacrifice be acceptable? Will the payment that I've made actually work? Does God accept it? Can I go to heaven? Am I going to heaven? How can we know? Christianity is the only religion that offers the answer that you can have surety and that you can know. And that solution is Jesus. And so how do we know Jesus? Just practically. We think about the person of Jesus. Think about his origin. And came from heaven was born miraculously of a virgin, and then he returned to heaven. He, he lived a perfect life. Jesus came and satisfied the law of God, lived a perfect life. He satisfied the law in, in that he never sinned. He satisfied the requirements of the law. He also not only re, uh, satisfied the requirements of the law, but he satisfied the penalty of the law. That Jesus, when he was on the cross, he took my sin and your sin upon himself. As he was on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the moment that God's wrath for my sin and yours was being poured out on Jesus. And you remember what happened. The earth shook. The sun went dark. The veil in the temple was rent from top to bottom. And Jesus cried out, it is finished. Te telestai, paid in full. What was paid in full? Your sin and mine. There in that moment, Jesus was the only sacrifice worthy to pay for our sin. I say, oh, well, the whole thing still seems like, how do we know that Jesus is the only way? Prophecy. And I love prophecy. And that's why I bring it up so often. The Bible is a prophetic book. Huge portion of the Bible is prophetic. It sets itself apart in that way. In the, it's the only religious text that is filled with so much prophecy. And we're not talking like these general pie-in-the-sky, weird Nostradamus sort of prophecies. We're talking about events being called out with specificity hundreds and hundreds of years before they happen. Thousands and thousands of times. Within Jesus' life alone, there are hundreds of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled that show that he's the Messiah. But we won't look at hundreds. We won't even look at tens. We'll just look at eight. So there was a professor, and I've shared this with you guys before. There's a professor at Westmont College. He wanted to know, he was curious, what is the mathematical probability that one man would fulfill just eight prophecies in his lifetime. And so he grabbed the faculty and he gathered up 600 of his students and they went to work. And through their exhaustive studies, they determined that the odds of one man fulfilling just eight prophecies is 10 to the 17th power. That number is huge. Those odds are supernatural. To put it in perspective, it would be like if you filled the entire state of Texas three feet deep with silver dollars 
And then you took a man and you blindfolded him. You spun him around. You dropped him out of a helicopter anywhere he wanted to go into Texas. And then he was to reach down into that pile covering Texas three feet. And he would pull out one that you happened to paint red. Impossible odds. That is the mathematic possibility that one man would fulfill eight prophecies. Jesus fulfilled hundreds. To go on to say that what's the probability of one man fulfilling all of them is is like 10 to the 50th power. It's impossible. There's real evidence built in there. God knew that we would have curious minds and we say, wow, we know what's going on. Not only do we have prophecy, but Jesus said. How do we know that Jesus is the only way? Well, he said so. So? There's lots of people that say lots of things. Yeah, but only Jesus backed it up. Right? Jesus said, I am the Messiah. I've come to lay down my life, that you guys might be forgiven of your sins, that heaven might be your home. How do we know that he wasn't full of it? Because he said, this is how you're going to know I'm telling you the truth. I'm going to die, and then three days later, I'm going to raise from the dead. And guess what? The tomb was empty. He rose from the dead. He conquered the grave. He proved who he was. Why Jesus? That is why Jesus. All other religions... They say, do, 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 question mark, question mark, question mark. Only Christianity says done, that you can have surety in your salvation. We don't have to wonder who God is, right? The poem, the, the, the smug poet who made us all like blind men, we're not blind men groping in the dark. God made himself known. He came, he became a man. He lived amongst us. He taught us. He showed us who he was. He showed us the way. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It's just Jesus. Just Jesus. And I love that. That's what Paul says. Man, when we are being ministers of the gospel, when we are being preachers, just Jesus. Jesus is the answer to salvation, but Jesus is also the answer to life. Jesus is always the answer. Only Jesus. Whether you are trying to figure out how you can walk in forgiveness, how you can overcome bitterness, depression, addiction, whether or not you need to figure out how to be a better wife or husband or employee or uh, employer, man, the answer is Jesus. And we can believe with confidence and we can share with people in great confidence that it's just Jesus. That is our approach. Just Jesus. What about our attitude? Verse three, Paul says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So Paul says, man, I came to you in weakness, not with lofty words. Paul came really to the church of of Corinth not as a somebody, but as a nobody, right? Paul didn't roll up to Corinth and said, here I am, the one, the only, the apostle Paul, you know? Like, roll out the red carpet. I'll have a black SUV, pick me up at the airport. The interior of that vehicle is to be 71 degrees exactly. There was none of that. Paul didn't come in his celebrity. He could have laid out some authority, like, hey, listen, I'm the apostle Paul. And he was the apostle Paul. But he came in humility. He didn't come looking to be served. He came to serve. He came, and you guys remember what Paul did when he showed up in Corinth? He got a job. He found some people making tents and said, hey, I can do that. 
And he worked for a living all day, every day. And then with his spare time, he spent every waking moment sharing the gospel with anybody who would listen. See, Paul came in humility. Paul came as a, a, a servant, even as Jesus came as a servant. See, remember, it's good to look at Paul's life and say, wow, that's neat, Paul, that you gave that to us. But our ultimate example is Jesus. And it says in Matthew 20, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. See, that's the way Jesus came. He, he came, he was born in the humblest way possible, in the feeding trough, to lay down his life for our sins. Paul became nothing, not for the sake of being nothing. Paul became nothing so that Jesus might be magnified. See, that's the key. When we're something, then Jesus gets lost in the periphery. Jesus gets lost in the, the white noise of our excellence. But when we're nobody, we can put Jesus front and center. This is what somebody said. Uh, you cannot at the same time give the impression that you are a great preacher or a theologian or debater or whatever and that Jesus Christ is a great savior. See, we get in the way. If you call attention to yourself and your own competence, then you cannot effectively call attention to Jesus and his glorious sufficiency. And see, and that's our goal, is to, to show Jesus as ultimately sufficient. See, it, it's not about us. Paul came not relying on his own lofty words or intellect or wisdom or reputation. He came relying on the Lord and the Lord alone. See, when he says that I come to you with uh, weakness and in fear and in much trembling, what does he mean by that? He came in weakness and fear and trembling. There are those that would say, well, that's because Paul got beat up in Athens, like intellectually, and now he's coming into Corinth with his tail between his legs. But I don't think that's what Paul meant. I think what is going on is that Paul says, I, I come to you guys in weakness and in fear and in trembling, as if to say, I come to you recognizing that it's not by anything that I have in my own strength that is going to accomplish God's will in your life. Paul came and recognized his need for the Holy Spirit to intervene. That after he took the approach of sharing Jesus simply and practically, that his attitude was to be a humble servant and not to rely on his own efforts, but to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. And again, uh, what an encouragement that is to us. But again, it really takes the pressure off because it's not about me. It's not about you. And that is really one of the biggest hangups that we have when it comes to being a preacher or a proclaimer of the good news. You say, well, what are they going to think of me? How am I going to sound? How will it be received? And it becomes all about, it's not about us. It's about the Lord. And it's not about the words we choose or don't choose. If we simply share Jesus, man, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. So our approach is just Jesus. Our attitude is that of humility and of trusting in the Holy Spirit. And then our aim. What is our aim? Verse 5. What is our goal? Our goal, Paul says, that he comes in the, the uh, demonstration of the Spirit and of power, verse 5, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul didn't come to build up his ministry. Paul didn't come to be heard. Paul didn't come to win an argument. He came that people might see the true and living God 
and be saved forever, eternally. And our goal is the same, that people might trust Jesus and follow him, that folks would come to a saving knowledge of who Jesus is, a genuine understanding. And here's the danger. If we rely on our own wit or our own salesmanship, then we can make converts, but we can make converts that aren't genuine, right? Some men are just flat out persuasive. Some men, really, I mean, they could sell an igloo to a person living in Arizona. Gladly, you'd be like, hey, I'll take that. I need two. Boy, I love that guy. Listen to him talk. I mean, people just have the gift sometimes of being persuasive. But if you can talk somebody into Jesus, then someone else can talk them out of it. Right? Our, our goal is not to, to win arguments or get people to, to join our crew. Our goal is to have people come into a, a, a genuine encounter with who Jesus is, that they might be saved. And, you know, we've taken this idea of, you know, selling people on the Lord or, uh, preaching a message that is easy to hear. We, 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 we've gone this direction in the church of the seeker-sensitive church the, to huge extremes, whereby we've said, you know, come on in with all of your sin and we'll celebrate your sin on one side. And, and on the other extreme, we say, hey, come on in and you're going to be so entertained and never even hear the gospel of Jesus. Well, we get into this mindset that we need to talk people into Jesus through our actions and through our programs and through our entertainment. And I'm telling you, it would be funny if it wasn't so sad, really. Uh, have you guys seen like some of the megachurch productions for Easter and for Christmas? I mean, they are crazy. Like, I'm not kidding. Like, pastors on invisible zip lines flying through the auditorium, Jesus is the Savior, and like the band and the pyrotechnics and the lights and the fog and the musicians, and you're like, dude, this is like Broadway and Guns N' Roses had a baby. <laughs> and where is Jesus in all of this? And people are like, yeah, I love church. You're like, but do you love Jesus? Did you have a real encounter with the Lord? Right, and that can be our temptation. But Paul says, hey, keep it simple. Our approach is Jesus and only Jesus. Our attitude is humility, relying on the Spirit, and our goal is always just to see people's lives changed. And that's it. And what a comfort that is for us. Man, what, a, what an encouragement that is to us. Effectiveness of evangelism does not depend on our arguments or persuasive gimmicks, but on the power of the Spirit of God at work in our lives and through his word, that we share. It's what Warren Wearsby said, and I agree with it. Just Jesus crucified. He came, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross for us, he rose from the grave. It's that easy. And I'm glad for that. And so, what a, a wonderful thing to have our perspective just aligned in. To remember, man, it's just the simplicity of the gospel, just the simplicity of Jesus. And as we come to the table this morning, man, we get to remember the simplicity of Jesus in the elements of communion. And I love that it really is simple. Jesus, on the night that he instituted communion, again, it was the night before he was crucified. He was there with the disciples in the upper room. They were sharing the, the Seder dinner. It was a, the Passover meal. It was a very traditional, very symbolic meal. They were celebrating a religious holiday 
And Jesus took the simplest of elements that were there, bread and wine. They would be on the table of the richest. They would be on the table of the poorest. They were common elements. And he used those common elements to illustrate a magnificent truth about who he was and what he came to do. And as he took the bread and broke it, he said, this is my body given for you. Jesus said, I I laid down my life for you guys. I took the punishment that you deserved. I was bound and beaten that you might experience freedom and healing. He took the wine and said, this is the cup of the new covenant. Not the old covenant where we appease God through law, but the new covenant where we trust in the sacrifice that Jesus made, where we recognize that it was his blood that was shed for us, whereby our sins are forgiven. The simplicity of it all. And he could have, he could have been extravagant with it. After all, it's the son of God laying down his life for the sins of humanity. He said, hey, remember me by this. Man, caviar wrapped in gold, served in a crystal platter, and I mean, all the rest. No, bread and wine common, available to all. Jesus is available to everybody. The rich, the poor, the beggar, the hurt, the sinner, the proud. Jesus is available to anyone who comes and says, I surrender. And he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And I don't want to leave this place this morning without giving you guys an opportunity to grab a hold of that truth that we've been talking about. That maybe you are in this place and you have bought that lie that, hey, you know what? All religions are kind of the same and we'll all get to God sometime. Or if I'm just a good person, I'll find myself in heaven. That's not true. Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And the only way to heaven is through him. And I want you to know that he desires to forgive you of your sins this morning. He desires a relationship with you. He desires for you to begin that journey. You say, I don't know how. It's really easy. You believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. That Jesus is who he said he is. That he came, he lived, he died on the cross in our place. That he rose three days later. And the Bible says, if you believe that and you confess that, then you're saved. And I want to give you guys that opportunity. I'm not trying to talk you into it. Again, because if I can talk you into it, I can talk you out of it. It's only the work that the Holy Spirit can do. But if the Holy Spirit is knocking on the door of your heart right now, then I am going to say, don't ignore it. I beg of you, answer the door. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. And I know it can be awkward and I know it can be weird, but I'm telling you what, it's worth it. And so Pastor Sky is going to come up and he's going to wait at the baptismal. And if you want to come up and pray and accept Christ, he'll pray with you. You can get baptized today. And baptism, man, it's a key part of Christianity. It's an outward expression of an inward change. You're saying, yes, I've been born again. There's been a change that's happened. I've been forgiven of my sins. I'm set free. I'm going to heaven. And we identify with the cross. We say, I'm dead to my sin. I'm dead to my old life. I'm dead to my carnal nature. And then we say, man, I'm alive in Jesus as we come out. It's a beautiful thing. And so if you want to get saved today, man, I'm telling you, you don't have to come up. I, I don't want to paint that picture. You can pray in your seat and you can be saved if you mean it in your heart and confess it with your mouth. But there's something special about coming up and we are commanded to get baptized. And so I want to make that available to everybody. And some of us, again, as I often say, 
Maybe you've been saved for a long time when you've neglected baptism. I want to tell you that baptism was not an optional thing. It is not a means of salvation. I'm not saying that. But it is something that the Lord commanded us to do. And when we walk in obedience, we experience great blessing and power. And the enemy whispers all sorts of lies into our ears about why it's a bad idea to do it. You're in your church clothes. You're going to be wet. You're going to look dumb. You're going to feel awkward. Whatever. The truth of the matter is, when you walk in obedience, and there's such peace and joy and power in it. So, Lord, thank you again so much just for the truth of your word. Lord, thank you so much for your great love for us that we've been invited to participate, to partake. Lord, we've been invited to the king's table. And as we come, Lord, and take communion this morning, man, it's with great reverence and reflection and joy, Lord, that we, we remember what you've done for us. That's what you wanted us to do, is to remember what you've done. Remember who we are because of what you've done and to walk in that. And so we thank you, Lord, that we can come to you, that you've saved us, that you've instituted this thing of communion for us to remember. But Lord, I also pray for those who are just standing there at that crossroads, who are, are feeling drawn to make that decision, but they're not sure how. Lord, that you, would, that you would just come beside them and that you would give them the strength that they need. And again, Lord, that you would do the work that only you can do. Only your spirit can move people, and I pray that you would do that even now, Lord. And so we thank you, Lord, we praise you, and we remember you. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's Word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com.